hats off to you for braving the storm, walking through the puddles on the way here. I've mentioned this little devotional, Be Thou My Vision, and uh, every day it has a prayer of illumination that you read before you read the Bible, and it, sometimes it's shocking and keeps me from uh, reading the Bible mindlessly, which I'm very tempted to do. Uh, but it has this one from Martin Bootser. You might remember him, first-generation reformer. And, uh, and he prays this, Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so I read it, but I also prayed it. Uh, it, is, it. It does add a little bit of urgency uh, to think that our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of God's Word. Uh, so with that in mind, let me read to you this section Uh, in Hebrews chapter 7 before I preach it. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
This is the word of the Lord. So I, I feel like I ought to, if, if this is strange to you, and this was kind of complicated, and it's a long stretch, uh, but I, I do want to make clear if, if all of this language is uh, weird to you, uh, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and so Israel was known as the 12 tribes. One of those tribes was Levi, and in the line of Levi, in the tribe of Levi, came Moses and his brother Aaron. Uh, After they got into the wilderness, they met the Lord at Sinai. One of the things that got set up uh, as the nation of Israel was preparing to enter the promised land uh, was a priesthood, and Aaron was going to be the first priest. And then the only priest from that point on were going to be descendants of Aaron, or at least they were going to be in the Levitical tribe. So you hear this language Uh, through the Levitical priesthood, and you wonder, what the heck is that? That's what it is. And so the the two kind of weird words that I'll use this morning are Levitical, having to do with these priests that came from the tribe of Levi, and I'll use the word mosaic, uh, which doesn't have to do with tiles uh, laid in a wall or in a floor, but it has to do with uh, everything that happened around the person of Moses. Uh, So Moses went up on the mountain, he received the law from God, he spoke with God face to face. Uh, That's an interesting thing to delve into, but all that came out of that uh, we call mosaic, the mosaic economy. And, and, you know, kind of the big point I'm going to make this morning is uh, the deficiencies in the mosaic economy and in the Levitical priesthood. So, um, I read an obituary yesterday. Uh, an obituary of a preacher, and this was an arresting line. Uh, It was written of him, he lived uh, for the long space of 80 years maintaining a Christian and unblemished life in this world of sin, treachery, and unrighteousness. And uh, if you pay attention to the news, I know that a lot of you, uh, and I as well, am convinced that we are now living in the worst of times, uh, an era of sin and treachery and unrighteousness. Uh, but that obituary was written in 1889 of Horatius Bonar. Uh, part of the problem of living in the era in which we live, and apparently in every other era, is that everyone thinks they know a lot about God and a lot about Jesus. The most common assumption that we have is that all religions are basically the same, uh, that every, and, and, and uh, they're, they're all basically different paths climbing up the same mountain. Have you ever heard that? There was a um, professor at MIT, I think, who came up with that. School of Comparative Religions, that we're all heading up the same mountain, we're all basically the same. Uh, Likewise, our assumptions about Jesus are skewed toward what is pleasing to a contemporary sensibility. Uh, We tend to make Jesus in our own image, and Uh, Social commentators have observed this, and they're not all wrong, uh, that we can create a Jesus either as a a justice warrior or we can create Jesus as a purity advocate. Uh, But we incorporate our own sensibilities into who Jesus is. And even in the church, even among those who read the Bible and study theology, it is perilously easy to reduce Jesus to manageable categories, to categories that we're comfortable with. 
Last week, I read a confession out of this book in which John Echolampadius confessed, first of all, vast unbelief. It might seem weird to you that a Christian would confess vast unbelief, but I'm convinced that that's one of our central problems. Uh, One of the deepest problems we've got is unbelief, and that's tied to, you know, an inadequate understanding of who God is and, in fact, who Jesus is. Now, that's all a little bit of a lead-in to say uh, that a thoughtful interaction with this letter or this sermon that we call Hebrews demonstrates pretty strenuously that there's no one like Jesus. And to imagine that he can be managed is to make a serious mistake. To imagine that he is similar in any way, shape, or form with other religious leaders or founders, again, is a huge mistake. And you and I are probably selling him short. And so we want to pay close attention to this. Um, Let's dive in. Uh, What the writer is doing is he's still interacting with Psalm 10. I appreciated Tim's introduction uh, to that uh, spot on. And, uh, And Psalm 110 is worth paying attention to. It's worth meditating on, thinking through carefully. And, and in my mind, the brilliance of what this writer or preacher is doing uh, with this is hard to grasp. It's amazing. He's basically teasing out this half of a verse that says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, it's another instance in which a little verse, half of a little verse, in a somewhat obscure psalm, uh, holds immeasurable treasure. And one of the cornerstones of our Christian faith is drawn out of this, this uh, expanded understanding of this simple phrase, you are a priest forever. Uh, according to the line of Melchizedek, you are a priest forever is all you really need uh, to remember. Um, Jesus used the first verse of Psalm 110 to confound his detractors. Uh, But this writer-preacher uses the fourth verse of Psalm 110 to upend the Mosaic economy and every human pretension to self-justification. Now, we need to think about that a little bit more. Uh, Three weeks ago, we did a detour uh, into Genesis uh, to take a look at Melchizedek, uh, to See how there's a record of an alternative priesthood, uh, an ostensibly better priesthood uh, than those Jews had ever known. But now he gets back to the psalm, or he gets back from the psalm, or got back to the psalm, Psalm 110, away from Genesis. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. So the first principle, and there's only going to be two, but the first one is this, and that is that the current priesthood that the Jews knew And indeed, the whole of the Mosaic covenant, the whole of the Mosaic economy, was weak and useless in one critical regard. It could make nothing perfect. That's what you see going on in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, we wouldn't have needed another priest. And those strong words are in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. Now, you, you get nervous when you start referring to a portion of the Bible and say it is weak and useless. But you have to understand what's going on. That, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now, the law is not bad. We know that, right? Uh, Paul defends the law. Romans chapter 7, go back and read his exposition of that. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It's not bad. It's just powerless. The apostle writes in Romans 8, the law was powerless in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So the problem he has just explained in chapter 7 is not the law, but the problem is man's sinfulness. Our sinful nature inhibits the law of God. Now, again, I want to be clear about this, and I want to be very careful about it, too, because I know a lot of you love the law, and that's an appropriate thing to do. David loved the law. He sang its glories throughout Psalm 119 and in Psalm 19, uh, but you've got to be careful about how you love the law and how you think about the law. The law does have a certain power. It exposes sin. It does that better than anything else. It feeds the conscience. But it doesn't have the power of perfection. It can't do that. It's a useful guide to life. Fair enough. You can uh, extract wisdom from reading the law. and, And you are wise and doing the right thing if you heed uh, the law of God. But, but our flesh, our human instinct, wants to inflate the law into the ground of acceptance. If I will keep the law, God will accept me. If I will keep the law, God will listen to me. So you, you remember this from the, you've, you've probably heard of Evangelism Explosion, a uh, thing that God used, a, a program that God used. I think it emanated from uh, Coral Ridge uh, Presbyterian Church, although uh, Dr. Kennedy, we quick to point to forebearers who had also thought this up. But do you remember this? I know some, some of you have. Some, we talked to some folks who were deeply invested in it. But, you know, the cornerstone of that program was asking people, would they be accepted by God if they were to meet him, if they were to die and meet God? And the general answer, and I've done evangelism explosion or a facsimile thereof, you know, the general answer, most Americans would say, yeah, I do expect to be received by God. I expect to be accepted by God. And and you would ask, well, why? On what basis? And the answer invariably was, I'm a pretty good person. At least I'm better than that guy. The funniest moment for me was when I was doing jail ministry and the prisoners were proclaiming their righteousness compared to those guys who were in the bank up the street. At least we're not as bad as those guys. So we all have got this instinct to say that the law, as helpful and good as it is, can actually be used to warrant our acceptance by God. And I, you know, I posed the question before, um, how do you expect God to hear your prayers? If you, I mean, if you really have something that you want from the Lord and you go and you beseech the Lord, and you cry out to him. How do you expect him to hear you? Well, ordinarily, we will shape up and we'll get our act together when we're in that kind of praying mode. 
You know, how many of you, when you really got serious about prayer, employed fasting to show the Lord you were really serious? And this is all to conflate the law and to turn it into something it's not supposed to be. Kent Hughes, in one of his sermons on Hebrews 7, explains in some detail how the entire Mosaic system was useless with regard to four things. Number one, making atonement, and we'll get to that in chapter 10. Secondly, it was useless regarding uh, the impartation of life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, if life could be gained by the law, then righteousness could have come by the law, and it hasn't. Uh, Thirdly, Hughes says that the law is useless with regard to clearing or cleansing the conscience. We get to that next week in chapter 9, uh, or in two weeks in chapter 9. And, uh, and lastly, it was useless with regard to providing access to God. You, you, did not get, you don't get access to God through the Mosaic economy. And that's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews is at pains uh, to demonstrate. Uh, I've often heard that the, it's good to think about the law as a, an x-ray machine, or as an MRI, or as a CAT scan. You know, it's good for revealing things that are hidden to the eye, but it doesn't affect healing. You go and get a CAT scan, and the cancer can be identified, uh, but the cancer will not be healed. It won't be made better with the CAT scan. That's what the law does. The law exposes your heart. It lets you know what's going on in your heart and lets you know of your need for grace. It's a tutor that leads you to Christ. It's a guardian that takes you in that direction. But it cannot affect perfection. Again, that's the language that's being used here. Now let's talk about perfection. Uh, you know, perfection is usually a funny word, isn't it? Uh, what, is, what is somebody thinking when they say, well, you know, I'm not perfect? What is that person thinking? What, what's, why did they bring it up? Uh, my kids used to do this all the time. I'm not perfect. And what they meant by that was, stop bugging me about this misbehavior of mine. You know, someone says, well, you know, no one's perfect. What they really mean is I want, I want you to excuse my misbehavior. The problem is that perfection, rightly understood, is precisely what you and I need if we want access to God. We have to have that perfection. And so let's define it. Uh, What perfection is in this passage is simply that. It is the qualities necessary in order for you to have access to God. That's what perfection is. That's what perfection means in verse 11, verse 19, and in verse 28. The qualities necessary to gain access to God. So Psalm 24 captures this. I love the psalm, who can ascend the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place? Who has access to God is what the psalmist is is asking there. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place? Do you remember where it goes from there? The psalmist answers, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? I think we can ask the same question next week when we have the Lord's Supper. Who can come to the Lord's Supper? 
The one with clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't lift up his soul uh, to what is false. I'm a little dismayed, actually, by some of the modern translations that pluralize that pronoun. It seems that they miss a very important point about that psalm. Only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul uh, to what is false. So the first principle is that the Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic economy, cannot provide that. It cannot provide the perfection that you and I need. Now the second principle is that whereas the law is weak and useless, uh, Jesus is able. That's been mentioned already today in a couple of places. I think it was mentioned in one of the prayers. Um, Jesus is able. In verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. Different translations have different words trying to capture the the strength of that word. He's able to save completely. He's able to save for all time those who draw near to God through him. That's to say that Jesus is not weak and useless. He's not weak, he's strong. He's not useless, he's necessary. He's not powerless, but he's incredibly powerful. And again, this teases out Psalm 110, verse 4. And the language is beautiful the way it's described there in verse 16. This becomes even more evident in verse 15 when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement, which is the Levitic priest, Aaron, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Isn't that a great phrase, the power of an indestructible life? Jesus is not powerless the way the law is. He's rather powerful. And, and this powerfulness, at least in this sense, in this instance, derives from his indestructible life. And no doubt that refers to his resurrection from the dead, and so I thought about this. This would be an interesting Easter sermon. You know, usually you go to Romans chapter 1, you know, where he was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Well, not only is he declared the Son of God with power, in power, uh, but he also fulfills, explains, makes sense of, illuminates the enigmatic appearance of Melchizedek. And this curious reference in Psalm 110. I I don't imagine anybody had any idea what that verse meant uh, until it started getting unpacked in the New Testament church. That Jesus has become a priest forever by virtue of his indestructible life. You know, the resurrection is central to our faith. It's why we meet on Sundays. We're going to celebrate it at Easter within a month, uh, but it's always good to remember and reflect and think about that, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the first and un- only human being uh, to be resurrected permanently from the dead. Peter, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, said that death could not hold Jesus so that God loosed the pangs of death. It's almost as though God had to loose the pangs of death because 
Jesus, because it, death couldn't hold Jesus. And why couldn't it hold Jesus? This is interesting to think about. It wasn't as though Jesus died a normal death and that God came to the rescue and resurrected him, but, but he died the death of the one who is sinless. And we know that death is the consequence of sin. If someone doesn't sin, they don't die. Jesus didn't sin. He was put to death, but death couldn't hold him. Death had no claim on him. It was inevitable that he was going to be raised from the dead because in his sinlessness, in his, if you want to get deeply theological, in his fulfillment of the covenant of works, in his perfect obedience, death had no hold on him. So he's a priest forever. The priest forever. I was raised, uh, for all practical purposes, in the Church of Rome. And I know some of you were as well. And one of the routine practices is that you confess your sins to a priest. That's what you have to do. That's the way you get sins forgiven. And uh, when the Lord opened up the Bible to me, you know, when I saw my sin, when I thought that some of these Protestants might be making sense and saying that I needed not only membership in a church but a relationship with Jesus, one of the verses that, that jumped off the page at me was in 1 Timothy uh, where Paul writes that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I went to the priest at my home church, a good guy, guy that I really looked up to, and I said, I, I, I don't think I'm coming to confession anymore. And he said, why is that? I said, because I've got a mediator. I've got a priest. And it's Jesus. He's a priest forever. And, and again, as I mentioned before, it's not as though Jesus simply fulfills the priesthood, but he fulfills it all. He fulfills every bit of it, and it's not as though it's the preexistent reality and Jesus comes along to make sure that he's addressing all the details of it in his fulfillment of it, but he's the preexistent meaning. He is the priest. He is the prophet. He is the king. He is the law. He is the temple. And one of the things that was wild in that period of my life, uh, this Presbyterian minister, I didn't know anything about Presbyterian, uh, brought in this mock-up of the temple. And, uh, and you know, all, everything that was in the temple, all the artifacts, that there was the holy oil, there was the holy water, there was the showbread, uh, there was the, the, uh, the altar, there were the candles. And, uh, and he showed us the way Jesus explicitly fulfilled every artifact in the temple, that he was the anointed one, that he was the, 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 ones out, the, the one who gave the water of life, the living water. Uh, that he was the light of the world, he was the light in the darkness, that he is the sacrifice offered on the altar, he's the bread of life, he's all of that. I mean, even, I mean, it goes all the way, the, the scholars will say that Jesus is, in fact, Israel. The true and final Israel, God's son whom he has called out of Egypt. Jesus fulfilled everything that Israel was supposed to have been. So, this passage goes on and underscores a whole lot more. He is called the guarantor of a better covenant in verse 22. 
And we'll get to the new covenant next week. Uh, The list in verse 26 is worth some further reflection uh, later on this afternoon. I don't know how you spend your Sunday afternoons, but it's good to reflect. It's good to open the word. Uh, Jesus is called holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We need to let this sink in. There was a golfer once who punctuated his habitual bad shots with the epithet, Jesus Christ. And after a couple of hours of that, one of his partners, you know, he hit a bad shot, Jesus Christ, said to him, is this the same Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, who descended into hell and on the third day was raised again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Is that the Jesus you're talking about? And the guy said, well, now that you mention it. <laughs> and, and, and the cursing stopped. But it's very easy for us to get into this habit where the name of Jesus becomes a mundane thing. You know, that we take to our lips casually without appreciating the profundity uh, that the writer of Hebrews exposes in these chapters. All of this culminates at the end when Jesus is described as the son, the appointed son who has been made perfect forever. So that's a big Jesus, right? It's kind of the same sermon that I preached three weeks ago. And probably the same sermon I'm going to preach next week too. Because that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's wanting to pound away at this. Uh, The thought among the folks to whom he is writing or preaching was, you know, maybe we're going to slide back into something that's a little bit more comfortable, something that's a little bit more socially acceptable. And he's saying, you don't understand who Jesus is. You know, so what does this do? You know, what does it do to your life? What does it do to the in and out, you know, the daily warp and woof of how you live, how you wake up, how you go to sleep? Well, the hymn came to me as I was thinking through this, would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you? Would you or evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and your pride? The last verse of that hymn, would you do service for Jesus your king? Would you live daily his praises to sing? You know the hymn, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood. God has in mind the perfecting of his people. You need to understand that that's his goal. His goal is to make you perfect. His goal is to make you holy. God hasn't done what he's done in the redemption that he has procured through the cross and resurrection of Jesus uh, in order to make you feel good. By faith... You can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. By faith, you'll be able to approach the Lord's Supper next week. But there is kind of that curious already not yet that's happening. We always need to hold on to. By faith, your hands are clean. But they're also becoming clean, right? By faith, your heart is pure. But it's also becoming pure. Uh, You've got problems to be sure, you've got them. 
You know, if you are living under the illusion that you are sinless, go ask your spouse. Go ask your good friends. They'll set you right. Uh, You and I have problems, to be sure. Sins hang on. But I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is you come to him. You come to him. And this is kind of the focus of where we're going. So we come to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our hearts, our minds, our thoughts on Jesus. And he's basically saying you will be perfected. You will be changed more and more. It's going to happen. You might not notice it. You might have lost hope. But in fact, the promise is there that this good priest, this faithful priest, this true priest, this real high priest is in the, pro- is in the process of perfecting his people. And in this way, Jesus demonstrates one of the ways in which, as the writer introduced the letter, uh, one of the ways in which he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are much more needy than we know. Uh, Please give grace. Uh, We are very thankful (coughs) that the promise